my grandfather was a coal miner in West Virginia beginning in the 1920s. And in these years before there were unions, the owners of the coal companies, also called coal barons, didn't always do what was right. They didn't always act with integrity toward the miners or their families. The most infamous practice of the the coal companies was to pay the miners not in U.S. currency, but with scrip. And the script could only be redeemed at the store owned by the company. Now, if you had to guess, do you think the prices at the company's store were higher or lower than in other places? Well, they were higher. Even if miners had a way out of the coal camp to another town to shop somewhere else, it was pointless because they had no money to spend anywhere else. And so they were stuck. And hence the famous Tennessee Ernie Ford song, You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Another infamous practice of the coal companies, they used fixed scales. A miner got paid per ton of coal that he loaded, and the scales were weighted so that they displayed one ton of coal when in reality there were two tons of coal on the scales. So, of course, the coal barons got richer and richer, and the, the miners remained poor and unable to get out of the company's debt. Even the Battle of Blair Mountain didn't help. It's the, mo- it's the largest labor uprising in American history, 10,000 coal miners against 3,000 company men. That came to an end when the president sent the U.S. Army. This is where I'm from, people. <laughs> into West Virginia. So the miners lost that as well, and they returned to dig two tons of coal for the price of one and to shop in the company's store. Now, big injustices get us riled up. They get you riled up? Big injustices get us riled up. History is full of them. I certainly didn't have to go back almost 100 years. We could talk about uh, where Bethany has been living in the Sudan. Injustice is all around us. This One just had particular connection for me. But here's the problem for us with big injustices. Big injustices that we see around us also serve as diversions. As long as we can point and say, Oh, look over there. Look at that injustice. As long as we can find someone who is worse than we are, then we are diverted. Our attention is diverted from ourselves. We're not looking at our own lives. We're not looking at what we consider minor injustices that we inflict upon others. But listen, we don't grade on a scale. We all stand before God, and God calls us, his people, to be people of justice and integrity. And as we are people of justice and integrity, God will use that in our lives to make a difference in this place. For Jesus' sake. That's what we're going to see in the passage this morning. God's call to each of us to be people of integrity, to do what's right, even when no one is watching. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn in the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. But when you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 25, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll hear read together the word 
of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 11. And yes, this is the word of the Lord. If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. Show her no pity. Do not have two differing weights in your bag, one heavy, one light. Do not have two differing measures in your house, one large, one small. You must have accurate and honest weights and measures so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does these things, anyone who deals dishonestly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, every bit of it. Father, we are reminded that all of your word in some way is a revelation of who you are. It's a revelation of your heart, how you view us, what you expect of us. Father, all of your word can be used in our lives to change us and transform us when your word is joined by the power of your spirit. So we pray that that would be the case this morning as we come to these verses. Change us by your truth. If we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right, let's go ahead and get verses 11 and 12 out of the way. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't get paid enough to preach verses like these. Uh, I know, I know that I know that you had a reaction when we read these verses. When you heard them read, the crime as well as the punishment. Some of you had that reaction last week. Came up after the service and elbowed me. Hey, did you read next week's verse? Yes, I read next week's (laughs) verse. So let's just work some, through some of those reactions so they don't get it in our way of hearing the truth. Because in actuality, when we get past the snickering and the shock, these verses have a lot to teach us about integrity and about doing what is right. So first, let's take just a step back and realize that what's described here in these verses never has to happen to anyone. You know, it's easy for us to make a snap judgment about God when we read something like this, but we often forget that people don't have to disobey. People choose to disobey. What's described here is not some random act of violence commissioned by a capricious God so that people are living in fear. Oh, Lord, may it never happen to me. No, it doesn't have to happen to anyone. In fact, there's no record that this ever happened to anyone. Apparently, the law was deterrent enough to keep this from ever happening. So from the beginning, we can dispel the notion that this verse proves that God is a cruel, angry God. It's not true. But he does want to teach us through these verses. And the the, the first thing that these verses reveal to us is what God thinks about propriety, decorum, decency, modesty. Though almost without exception, 
the older commentaries from centuries ago, they comment that modesty is really the application of these verses, that, that modesty is the principal teaching of this verse. I was tempted to leave it out because I thought, well, I don't know if these guys were right. After all, the, the old guys see modesty here because, well, they were old. <laughs> Their culture, we think, was uptight, restrictive, repressive right? John Calvin writes, this law is apparently harsh, but its severity shows how very pleasing to God is modesty. Whilst on the other hand, he abominates indecency. It was indeed inexcusable effrontery, willfully to assail that part of the body from the sight and touch of which all chaste women naturally recoil. Well, and our day and age, hardly anyone recoils from, from anything in our free and progressive culture. And so we laugh at what John Calvin writes. Matthew Henry wrote between 1708 and 1710. Here is a very severe but just law to punish imprudence and immodesty. The instance of it is confessedly scandalous to the highest degree. A woman could not do it unless she were perfectly lost to all virtue and honor. See, these guys don't know how the world works. They didn't know how to relax and enjoy life. Really? Are we so sure? Are we so sure that we are right and they are wrong? Are we so sure that they were bound up and repressed, but we are, on the other hand, free? Well, if we could take another step back and lay aside the arrogance that always marks the current generation. Every generation thinks they are better than the one that came before. If we could just lay that aside for one moment and be honest. See, in our culture... We believe if it isn't raw, it isn't real. If it isn't raw, it isn't real. And reality TV shows, they reinforce and perpetuate that, as does Maury Povich and his daily guests. Our culture craves what is raw. And we ridicule, usually, the Disney version of anything. I don't know if you saw the movie, The 100-Foot Journey, Man, I enjoyed that movie. I loved it. Felt so good after I watched it. Everybody that I showed it to, they loved that movie. So I thought, I want to see what the critics say about this wonderful, amazing movie. They have to love it as much as I did. Not so much. This wholesome and uplifting saga of food and family provides a feast for the eyes, even if it neglects the rest of the senses. You wish the filmmakers could have added more spice to the recipe. See, that's the way it goes. Read, read movie reviews. Read what the critics say. If a movie doesn't take you to the very edge, it no longer gets uh, promoted as, as, a, as a, a fresh movie. There's little modesty in our culture anymore. In our language, in our dress, in our behavior, in our living arrangements... You know, I'm still trying to get used to the idea of co-ed dorms and co-ed bathrooms. I, I don't even know how that works. But the truth is, being raw is not 
what makes us real. Being redeemed makes us real. Being bought back by God through faith in Christ to experience the relationship with Him He created us to have, that's what makes us real. Being redeemed, being rescued makes us real. Rescued from what we would be if it weren't for the intervention of God. Rescued from baseness, rescued from rawness. Being renewed and being restored by the indwelling Spirit of God to be who He's called us to be. That's what makes us real. And so we've got to recapture a biblical view of our identity, of of who we really are. And we need look no further than Psalm 8. God says that He has created us as human beings a little lower than the heavenly beings. And He has crowned us with glory and with honor. Animals act according to instinct, urge, desire, need, compulsion. So it seems to me that the more raw we and our culture become, the closer to animals we become. But God has elevated us above that. He's elevated you above that. It is the ability that the indwelling Spirit of God gives us to act counter to our instincts that elevates us. It's the ability to not be driven by our impulses and urges that makes us the real people that God has created us to be. It's the ability not to say what we think in every situation. It's the ability not to do what we want to do that elevates us and elevates our culture. Repression is actually a good thing. Did God not say to Cain in the very beginning of human history, Genesis chapter 4, Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. That's a definition of repression. Repressing the sin, not letting it have control. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, for sin shall not be master over you. So please don't buy into the lie that to be raw, to be out there, is what makes you real, progressive, on your way to true freedom. Elevating our culture is throwing off restraints. It's a lie. It's a lie that devalues and dehumanizes us. With every step, it takes us further and further and further away from the glory and the honor for which God has created us. Modesty is not a sign of repression. Modesty is a sign of redemption and rescue and restoration and renewal. And a society that has lost its way in this is a society on the decline i.e. ancient Rome. The society that embraces God's view in this is the society on the ascent. And so you and I need to have integrity in this area in our lives. Not just for ourselves, but for the sake of this culture. In 
which we hope to make a difference for Jesus' sake. As believers in Christ, you and I have to live out the honor and the glory with which He has crowned us as His sons and daughters. Embrace God's view of you. Be a person of modesty. Act justly toward other people in this as well. Don't let the bigger injustices that we find when we look around us, don't let them divert you from the attention to the injustice you may be doing to others in what you require of them, or at least in what you encourage them toward. If you are encouraging others in immodesty, in language, the way they speak, if you're encouraging in others immodesty in dress, if you are encouraging in others immodesty in behavior, stop. You do them an injustice. You do anyone an injustice that you encourage to live outside of God's ordained way for his people to live. So we've got to strive to be people of integrity, people who do what is right, And just. Well, for someone who wasn't going to mention this, I certainly (laughs) went on about it. But we can't leave this verse yet because there's more truth for us. Not only does it speak to us about modesty, it speaks to us this truth. That the, the, the end does not justify the means. Now let me tell you what's true. When I was teaching school... I would have preferred to break up a fight between two boys than two girls any day of the week. I know this from experience. On more than one occasion, girls just keep fighting around you, windmilling, you know, and they slap and they pull hair and you're trying to get between them, you know, on and on and on they go. That's how girls fight. Well, for this particular attack mentioned here, It's not windmill slapping, random, this, that. No, you would have to be very intentional. You'd have to choose just the right moment for your attack. The Hebrew word used here in verse 11 for grab or seize indicates just that, a violent attack. And so if a woman were successful in this, the fight would definitely be over and her husband would be the winner. But listen, having your wife, what's worse, having your mother win for you? But of course, this is a goal is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for a a wife to want to see her husband win. It's not dishonorable. That desire probably comes from a good place in her heart. I want to help my husband. It's what a supportive wife would want to see. But listen, you can't do just anything you want to get what you want. And so this verse reminds this potential woman, and it reminds us that the end does not justify the means. And that's where integrity and that's where justice becomes so important. Because all of us are good at justifying our actions. We are so good at justifying ourselves. If we believe the end is noble, sometimes it doesn't matter to us how we achieve that end, but it matters to God. And he calls us to be people of integrity. If the end is right and noble, then the way to get to that end must be right and noble as well. You know, I would love to pay off these buildings 
love to be debt-free as a church. I would love it. And if I won the lottery, I could do that. So I could justify buying a whole lot of lottery tickets if this were my goal. Hey, Lord, doing it for you. But see, then I would be squandering the money that God has entrusted to me. I would be promoting gambling as a way for people to achieve their their financial goals. As if God is not competent or able to pay off these buildings in other ways. But if you win the lottery, just kidding. I think the Lord would have each of us look at our lives and see how we might offend in this area how we justify wrong attitudes, how we justify wrong actions, how we excuse ourselves from things we know to be less than honest because we hold up the end that we are trying to achieve as noble. God calls us to be people of integrity, and the call to integrity is at the very same time a call to faith. We have to trust God. We have to trust that God will do what is good and right to achieve the goals, the ends that we have for ourselves, even goals that are for His glory. We have to trust that He will help us achieve that end through His appointed ways. Maybe your goal is to change the behavior of your spouse or your children or a friend, and maybe their behavior really needs to be changed. But how are you going about it? In a way that builds them up? Or are you using manipulation to achieve your, your goal? Listen, manipulation is never a good way to achieve your end because it's not honest. Maybe you're trying to get a spouse. How are you going about that? Manipulation is never the way. It's not the right means to the end. We could go on and on with example after example. Home place, workplace, classroom. But always we've got to be asking ourselves, how am I seeking to attain what I want? What impact is it having on others? How, Lord, am I deceiving myself? How am I justifying myself in order to do what I want to do instead of what I should do? That coal baron could place his head on his pillow at night in his ornate bed housed in his beautiful mansion. And he could have drifted off to sleep thinking, you know, I've built houses for all these miners to live in. They're bare, but yeah, there's shelter nonetheless. I've paid for their teachers and their schools. I've paid for a minister and their pulpit. I've paid for a doctor to, to call on. Just look at all they have. And look what I'm doing for the economy of America. I'm participating in making it the greatest nation on earth. Oh, what a good boy am I. So what if I have to cheat them a little bit to get there? Good night. See, the the ends do not justify, the end does not justify the means. And so you and I have to be people of integrity, committed to doing what's right. And that brings us, very logically and thankfully, to verses 13 and 14. Look there. 
It says not to have two differing weights in your bag, either in the marketplace or in your home. Because God will not allow us to have a double standard. He requires honest weights and measures. See, in the culture of the day, the merchant would use a really heavy stone when he was buying. (laughs) I want this much weight and what I'm buying from, from you. Because like us, he would want the most for his money. But when it came time to selling what he had and giving it to others, he would use a little smaller weight so he didn't have to give away as much. He would like to get, but he didn't like to give. God says, no, no, you cannot cheat people this way. You have to have integrity. And besides that, why would you cheat? This is a a member of the covenant community of God. What don't you trust God to provide? If you do it for greed, why do you seek wealth? What idol do you have that wealth is feeding? What insecurity? What identity do you seek that you can only attain through wealth? Or if it isn't for greed, but just so that you have enough for yourself, why aren't you trusting God to provide for you? What are you afraid of? If it's simply to exploit others because you, you can, why would you do that? Why would you view others made in the image of God in this way? Why would you want power over them? God's call to his people, to you and to me, is to be people of integrity, to do what's right, even when no one's watching, even when no one will ever find out that you have two stones of differing weights. That's what integrity is. It's doing what is right, even when no one is watching. One commentator writes, But where neither the eye of man can penetrate, nor the hand of man can reach, there, in that place, there, the claims of justice are felt by the truly upright. Far beyond all formal compacts, all legal obligations is the demand of reason and conscience on the just man. We can't forget that what God is doing is he speaks to these people gathered on the plains of Moab through Moses as he is preparing them. God is preparing these people to live well in the land that he is giving to them. Because in that land, they will wear his name. They will be known as the people of God. They will be called the nation of God. And so if they wear God's name, they have to to reflect the truth of who he is. He is a God of all truth. And if God is not true, if God is not truth, who is? What is? Where and what place is any hope? But God is truth. Jesus is truth. The way, the truth, and the life. And so you and I, must not mar who God is. We can't deprive others of knowing God in this way because we refuse to be people of integrity, because we do not want to do what's right when people are watching or when they're not. And when that name is rightly applied to us, that the world loves to apply to us, hypocrite, often it's rightly applied to us. And it does such damage to the gospel and the growth of the kingdom. 
our dishonest actions, our lack of integrity, our lack of care and compassion, our ambivalence toward injustice, those things are shouting so loudly ah, that people can't hear us when we speak the words of the gospel. And so why in the world should people put their trust in a God whose people are dishonest or have no integrity? We have to choose to do what is right. So we finish up this morning, I, I think of Jesus. And I think of all the choices that were before him as he lived here, as we are living here now. I think of all the could-haves that were before him. He could have let the cup, he could have let the cup pass from him. He could have asked the Father to come up with another way, another plan to pay the price for our sin. Come up with another plan to redeem us, to buy us back. On the cross, Jesus could have cursed those who cursed him, who looked up and saw him on the cross and insulted him and harangued him and cursed him. Jesus could have cursed them back. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, those who curse you, I will curse. So Jesus would have been justified in that. But he did not curse. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness. Jesus on the cross could have called 10,000 angels to come to his rescue. Save me from this hour. But he did not. Instead, he hung there to the very end of his life so that he could cry out, it is finished. The price for sin has been paid. All along the way, in Jesus' life, he had choices to make. When he was suffering in his human nature, he could have acted out of his divine nature to alleviate that suffering. And without question, he would have been justified in so doing because he was always, in every moment, the perfect, sinless Son of God. He could have always played that card. He could have always said, I don't deserve this. And it would have been true. He could have looked for a different way to achieve the end that he and his father had agreed upon, but he did not. These were the appointed means to accomplish that goal, and Jesus never strayed from them. Jesus is not only our Savior, but He's our example, your example and mine. And He lived before us a life of integrity, even when integrity caused Him great suffering. And so you and I this morning cannot dismiss the humanity of Jesus. How doing what was right caused him suffering. That's why scripture records it. So that we won't dismiss it. That's why scripture tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. He was tempted to take a shortcut. He was tempted to justify a wrong means to achieve a noble end. But he did not. He did not yield to that temptation, and neither must we.
We can do it. We can be people of integrity. We can be people who do what's right. It's not always easy. It absolutely requires the work of the Spirit of God in us. And it requires us coming to the Lord, crying out to the Lord, seeking His strength. Help me, Lord, to do what's right. It requires you and me keeping our eyes fixed on our final goal, our ultimate end, heaven, eternity with Christ, perfection, bliss. We have to remember that. That's our goal. And then we have to ask ourselves, how are we living on our way there? Even when doing what is right is difficult? Even when acting with integrity is irritating to us, we remember our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We can live this way. We can. With integrity and justice. For what is in reality just a really brief time as we make our way toward home. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that you love us enough to teach us your will for our lives. Father, we thank you once again, as we've already done, where we fail to be the people that you've called us to be. As things come to our mind, Lord, even during this time as your word was being, being preached about injustices in our own lives and lack of integrity and not being true and right, we thank you that for those things there is forgiveness. We need only to confess them to you and there's forgiveness. There's power to go and, and make right those wrongs. And there's strength, Lord, to be different. There's strength. There's resolve to be the people that you have called us to be, to live lives of truth, to live with honesty and integrity and justice so that when people look at us and, and see how we're living and know that it's a result of your power at work within us, we may, Jesus, we believe we will make a difference in our culture, in our society, and around the world for your sake. And that is our hope, and that is our prayer, that you would accomplish through it. That's our end. Do it through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.